Romans 8:28, probably one of the more familiar passages in Romans, probably one of the more well-known passages, well-quoted, oftentimes uh, misquoted with regards to context. Uh, we looked at this verse particularly in our series that we did on context and how abused uh, this verse can be and, and uh, even in its application. There, we, and so over the next two weeks, we're going to just simply break down verses 828. If you thought we were going slow before, we're going to slow it down. No, but Romans 828 really is, is foundational. We, we've said that uh, Romans 8 really uh, is written, if we were to sum it up with one word, we said the overarching truth would be assurance. And if we would, if we would get Romans 8.28 settled in our hearts, if we would be completely confident and assured of what we see here in Romans 8.28, I, I really believe we would live lives that have much greater assurance, especially, especially in times of struggle. And that's really, that's really, if we're honest, that's where we struggle. When everything is going great, anyone can live that way. It's when times are not so great. And, and what we saw last week in Romans 8, 26 and 27, how the, Spirit, how the Spirit intercedes for us and the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for. We do not know God's will in every situation. Therefore, we don't know how best to pray. And yet in those times, the Spirit has been given us to help. And here that that is tied in with Romans 8, 28. That it is, it's all tied together. That even in our weakness, even in our not knowing what to pray for, God is at work. God's doing something. Even our lack of knowing what to pray for doesn't frustrate God's purposes. And, and what we'll see today, neither does sin, neither does any circumstance. And so the main point you'll see on your handout again, all of this is tied to assurance. If we do not get this right, we will lack assurance. But if we get this right, I believe we can have great assurance no matter what we face. Again, that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, when we suffer, we're going to feel condemned. And you're not. You're not. And what Paul says here, as John read, Romans 8, 28, we know... And we know, it's tied together, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Main point, believers can rest assured that God causes. The word there is causes. That, that's a powerful word. That word causes is packed. As soon as I say that, your minds are potentially racing to what-if questions, and, and, and I think we'll deal with those. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, conforming us, as we'll see in the coming weeks, to the image of Christ and guaranteeing our ultimate glorification. There, there are some fundamental truths here that we've got to agree on if we're going to rightly understand 828. And these truths are rooted in the character 
and the person of God. His character and his person forms the foundation of what Paul is saying here. God's character is the why, but God's character is the what. It, it, is, it, is, it doesn't depend on you. It's not primarily about you. The, the reason we can trust this verse is because of the character and the person of God. It is rooted, it's rooted in who he is. Therefore, we can find assurance, no matter what we face. And so today, we're going to look at the first half of the verse, and next week we'll look at the second half of the verse. And so you'll see in your handout, letter A, as we look at the first half, the first, the first truth that we need to, to grasp and to work through, if we're going to really allow Romans 8.28 to do its work, is this, that Paul can assure believers that God causes all things to work together for good because here it is, God is in total control of all events. Total control. How, how can Paul be so sure that God will bring things to a certain and appointed end? How can Paul assure believers of these truths that all things work together for good? It's because of this right here, that God is in total control. You see it in your handout. In order to grasp the weight of this, in order to see the reality that forms really the foundation of this verse, you, you must agree that God is ultimately in control. And He is carrying all things, all of history, all things, He is carrying them to an appointed end. Listen to Colossians 1, 15-18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Listen, all, here, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. Listen, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place, preeminence in everything. Why do things hold together? Because God is holding them together. What, what, is, the, what is the chief preeminent goal of all things? It's not your well-being, it's his glory. His glory is preeminent. God makes that very clear all throughout the scriptures. My glory is preeminent. I will not share my glory, he says in Isaiah 42, 8, with another. He, he, all things are primarily about God's glory. Everything, everything, you and me, everything exists for the glory of God. And we must agree that there is no limit to his power, that nothing is beyond his control. And you see on your handout, we refer to the reality of God's unlimited control, his supreme authority. You see it there, that whatever he wills, he brings to pass, and that his divine purposes are always accomplished. We call that the sovereignty of God. That is the sovereignty of God. 
When we say that God is sovereign, we're saying he is in complete control, that God has the complete power and the authority to do anything and everything that he wants to do. You see it in, in Luke 1 with regards to the virgin birth. And Mary says, nothing will what is impossible with man will not be impossible, God, for nothing is impossible for God. Jeremiah 32, verse 17 and 18. Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and everything by, your, by, by the power of your outstretched hand. Here's the conclusion. Nothing is too difficult for you. Sovereignty. Another word, another big word that you'll hear tossed around maybe or see is omnipotence. That God is all-powerful. And because of that, what you see, you see it on your hand out there, what you see is that God is seen throughout Scripture not only sustaining everything, the first word there is sustaining, not only does God sustain everything, not only does He hold it together, but Scripture also shows that God is guiding all creation to an appointed end. God has an end in mind that He is taking all things. Ephesians 1.11, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. Here it is. Who works all things after the counsel of his will. And, and think about why this is important. Think about why it's important that God is sovereign, that God is all-powerful. On, listen, only one who is sovereign can tell you what's going to happen tomorrow with specific terms and complete accuracy because only one who is sovereign can make sure that they happen, right? Only one who is sovereign can make sure that it gets to where it's going. And not only that, only one who is sovereign can tell you it's going to happen, right? Because he knows it's going to happen. He can guarantee that it'll happen. He knows that he will accomplish whatever he's purposed to happen. You go to Psalm 115, verse 3. It says very clearly, God does whatever he pleases. Notice it didn't say he didn't, con I, I consult Chris. Hey, I'll consult, I'll consult. No, I'll do whatever I please. And this truth is foundational to Romans 8, 28. If God doesn't have a purpose, if God doesn't have a long-range vision that he is carrying all things to, listen, then he couldn't work all things out to according to his purpose, right? You've got to have something out there that you, see, that, you, that you are taking all things to in order to work all this towards that. That makes sense? You've got, you've got to know what's happening out there. And you've got to be able to assure that you can get it there. Because again, if God didn't have a purpose, then he couldn't work all things according to that purpose. But if he had a purpose, but he's not able to pull it off, then your trials and your suffering may thwart that purpose. Right? You see how it all works together. You can have a purpose, but if you... Listen, there are a lot of times where I have a plan, but I don't have the power to pull it off. And things happen that prevent the plan from happening. And then there's other times, if you know me, that I just don't know where I'm going. But in order for Romans 8, 28 to work, God has to be sovereign. 
And, and the rub here, and that's great. Listen, we love a sovereign God until we suffer. That's where the rub comes in. As soon as we say that, our minds and your minds may be there now. Well, what about this? Listen, you don't think as I prepared this, my mind didn't go? There's probably 60 of you in here that my mind thought about specifically and prayed for specifically as I prepared this. The, 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 the question, you know, it, God's sovereignty, we have a hard time grasping it when we, when we realize and look around at the suffering. And the question becomes this, if God is sovereign, why do his people suffer? Great question. Why wouldn't God keep this from happening? Great question. The, the reality is this. Suffering is the context in which Paul says, Romans 8.28, right? Go back to 8.18. I do not consider the present what? Sufferings worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Suffering is the context. And yet Paul did not seem to shy away. Paul didn't seem to have a problem with it. In Paul's eyes, suffering in no way, shape, or form compromised any of God's perfections. It, they don't compromise his perfection. The, the problem becomes what we try to do as humans is we try to get God off the hook. We, we, want, we come up with all these other theologies that are just outright false and they're lies to try to get God off the hook, specifically with suffering. And one of them, and, and it, could have, it, could be, it could be in here in this room today, one of them is op called open theism. And open theism argues that God is not sovereign, especially over suffering and the terrible things that happen. They say that God is simply responding, that God is up there waiting for man to act, and then God scrambles to come up with a solution. Do you understand how lack of assuring that is? How chaotic that is? God, God's not up there waiting and responding. And, and this theology exists because we can't wrap our minds around the fact that God would be sovereign and yet people suffer. We can't balance the two, and so we try to get God off the hook. But in doing so, you rob Romans 8.28 of its power. Never mind, I mean, you, you rob it of the assurance. God is not relegated in Scripture to reacting to human choices. He's sovereign. He's carrying everything to an appointed end. He's not up there simply making lemonade out of lemons. Don't diminish God's sovereignty. And, and listen, I mean, l listen to just some verses that would, that would counteract open theism. Isaiah 14:24 for one the lord of hosts has sworn saying surely just as i have intended so it has happened and just as i have planned so it will stand that's pretty clear a pretty clear definition isaiah 46 10 and 11 declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, 
of man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I'll do it. Listen, even in suffering, God is sovereign. He does not need us to water down this truth to get him off the hook. Because here's the assurance. Here's the assurance that we draw from this. And you see it on your handout. Nothing, not even suffering, frustrates God's plan and his sovereignty. Nothing can frustrate it. Quite the opposite. Rather than sinful people frustrating God's purposes, we see a sovereign God frustrating the purposes of sinful people. And we've mentioned this before, but in Genesis 50, verse 20, we see Joseph standing in front of his brothers, and, and, and there's a famine in the land, and the nation of Israel and his brothers are going to starve. And, and listen to what Joseph says. In spite of every, Listen, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was left for dead. He was, so, he was accused of, falsely accused of rape. He was imprisoned. He didn't see his father. All these things, all these things, listen to what he says. As for, he says, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Listen, God's sovereignty did not nullify human responsibility. Joseph didn't say, hey, don't worry about your bad, sinful decisions. You guys, don't worry about it. No, you guys meant it for evil. It doesn't nullify man's responsibility. And, and this, even this, this is hard for us to grasp, that how these two things work together simultaneously. God is sovereign, man is responsibility. But Scripture teaches it. They run parallel. They're intertwined in the events. I can't, I can't distinguish between the two sometimes. I can't make heads or tails, but I know that God is sovereign. I know Galatians 6, 8 says this, You and I reap what we sow. So clearly our decisions matter. Clearly there are consequences for our decision. And again, Joseph didn't let his brothers off the hook in the sense of, it's not like I'm... Your decisions played a part in this, but God was sovereign. And, and, and listen, it gets clearer. I, I, as I was studying this, I was, I was reminded, write down Genesis 45, verses 5 through 8. So Joseph's brothers come in his presence, and Joseph calls his brothers to him. Now, these are the men who sold him into slavery wanted him dead, left him for dead. And Joseph says to them, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Listen to what he says, though. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Listen, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Think about that. Verse 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor investing. Joseph says it again in case you missed it. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. 
Okay, let me reiterate it one more time in verse 8. Joseph says, in case you haven't got it. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Who ultimately put Joseph where Joseph was? Say it aloud. God. Did it involve circumstances that were less than pleasant? Yes. Were his brothers culpable in some way? Yes. And yet God was sovereign. He says it three times. God sent me here. And you say, well, that, okay, I get that. Well, let's, let's look at Psalm 105. Whole, whole different book. And, 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 and listen to what it's teaching. Psalm 105, write down verses 16 and 17. The context here is God's awesome works on behalf of his people Israel, on behalf of the nation of Israel. Listen to this. Again, that's the context. God working on behalf, God fulfilling his promises, doing exactly what he said. Verse 16. And he called, God called for a famine upon the land, and God broke the whole staff of bread. But listen to this, verse 17. God sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Who did it? God did it. Again, were, were Joseph's brothers culpable? Yes. Did their choices and did their sin matter? Yes. God didn't make them sin. But nothing they throned dethroned God's, nothing they did dethroned God's sovereignty. Nothing they did frustrated God's plan. It only brought them to fruition in ways, again, that they had no idea what God was doing. Again, tying even that back together, what we saw, Joseph didn't know what God's will was him, for him was necessarily. He had to trust. And he had to be faithful in the midst of suffering. And listen, here's the point. You see it on your handout. God is not waiting to see what will happen and then responding, but rather God is guiding everything to an appointed end. He's guiding it. He's carrying it. And I just realized that I usually go back on the handout and review it, and I use guiding twice. I just realized that I read, wrote that, so I apologize. My vocabulary is limited. What can I say? I say all that to say this. Genesis 50-20 is an Old Testament version of Romans 8-28. Agreed? Again, the context is suffering. The context is groaning. The context is hard things. But, but it, goes, it goes even, Scripture goes, we have more examples than just that. To, to, and I, I share these just to help us see it. Write down Acts 2.23. Start in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, listen to verse 23. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Who put Jesus on that cross ultimately? God. Did sinful man play a part? Yes. Go Flip over a couple. Acts 4, 27 through 28. 
Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Listen. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Were they culpable? Yeah. Were they doing exact? They were carrying, God was using them to carry every single thing exactly to where he wanted it to be. Even the cross is a picture of God's sovereignty. God planned it for good. He went up there scrambling around. Oh man, they just killed my son. What am I going to do? Man is responsible, and yet God is sovereign. And, and here's the good news. Here's the why we can have assurance. You see it on your handout. Not even our sin frustrates God's sovereignty nor his plan. Grasp the assurance here. Don't miss it. That's the whole point of Romans 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Graham Scroggie, a famous theologian, famously said this, among many other things. He said, he is at peace whose God is sovereign. Think about that. He is at peace whose God is sovereign. And, and Romans eight twenty eight itself, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God's sovereignty assures that nothing frustrates his plan. That he is working everything out for, for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. And you see it on your handout. Here's the reality. All things don't just happen to work out for our good, but rather God providentially works them out for our good. They don't just happen to work out. We, we don't believe in coincidence. We don't believe in luck. We don't believe in good karma. We don't believe in good fortune. We don't believe that the sun just comes out tomorrow. That's not the type of mentality. Well, the sun will just come out tomorrow. No, that's not it. We don't believe that things just happen to work themselves out. We believe in a sovereign, good God who has promised to work them out as a part of a massive a deep, again, this is part of the massive and deep and, and, and just unshakable foundation that God wants you to have, believer. And Romans 8.28 keeps us, assures us that no matter what, even, to, again, tied in 8.18, the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. How can Paul even say that if God is not sovereign? How can Paul assure you that what you have in the future will pay, will make anything you've suffered not even be worthy to compare if he can't guarantee it? Think about it. If God's not sovereign, Paul can't even say Romans 8.18. And, and the reason why I said earlier that this is all about God is because you, listen, you and I are not the key to our assurance. God is the key. His character is the key. His work will keep His promise true for you. Or it won't be true for you. And you say, okay, Chris, why do you say that? Because, listen, 
be honest, your love is way too fragile to be depended on for something like this, right? I mean, we're weak in that we don't know what to pray for, but we're weak in a lot of areas. You think about this, have anyone in here kept all their promises? Nope. Anyone in here ever lied? Yep. All of you. Have you perfectly loved and have you perfectly done and followed through with everything, even if you didn't just outright lie about it? Have you promised something and then realized you couldn't carry it through? Yes, you have. What, what does that tell us about ourselves? It tells us that we can't be trusted. Certainly not, certainly not with 828. But, but in contrast to that, if that was it, there would not be hope. But in contrast to that, we have the picture of a God whose actions and love and, are not uncertain, are not fragile. It, not only did it bring your love into being, but it will keep your love into being, just as He's promised. That's the bedrock assurance we can have here. God is ceaselessly, eagerly, purposefully working for your good, believer. Nothing, nothing, nothing will thwart that. That's the assurance Paul wants you to feel here. That is amazingly good news. That is amazingly comforting news. And you see it on a handout. Nothing, nothing can thwart God's purpose or plan for your life. Not even, not even your not knowing what to pray for in the midst of suffering. Nothing. Again, what does he say here? We know that God causes a few things. We know that God causes the obedient things. No, that's not what he says. We know that God causes, what does he say? All things. What does all encompass? All. It's pretty, it's all. Right? All. Anything, anything that is a, anything that is a part of this life, even our sins, are under the sovereignty of God. They do not frustrate His plan. Does it mean that we should be willy-nilly about our sin? Absolutely not. But that's the whole point. There is no condemnation. That was Paul's point again, going back to Romans 7. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Verse 25, praise be to Jesus Christ. He'll deliver me. And when I'm weak, he's strong. And when I fail, I will plead the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And, and the, the faithfulness of God, the promise of God is this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The promise is this, 103.12 of Psalm. I will separate your sin as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah 1.18, though your sins were scarlet, I will wash them white as snow. Listen, feel the weight of this. And, and, and listen, I, I'm not... I, the sinful mate who left you for another did not ruin God's plan for your life. That's the beauty of Romans 8.28, as it is. The accident that changed everything did not ruin God's plan for your life. The evil person that lied about you at work and got you fired did not frustrate God's purpose and plan for your life. The misdiagnosis, it didn't thwart God's plan and purpose for your life. 
Feel the weight of 828. Feel the assurance that, that Paul is offering you. God is using all of those things to shape you and I into his image. Rest in the sovereignty that God causes all things to work together for good. But, but again, he says God causes all things to work together for good. And that leads me to B. Paul can assure believers that God causes all things to work together for good because God is always good. I almost put the word alone in there. God alone is good. Here's why that matters, because you and I aren't good. Paul's already made that very clear in Romans 3. There are none good, there are none who do good. You say, well, what about this? You're not always good. Even in, even in your best moment, you and I are not always good. Agreed? So we really can't be trusted to take things to the ultimate good, right? Because listen, if I trusted you with that, there's a good chance that the good would primarily be about who? Me and you. I'd look out for me and my clan. You'd look out for you and your clan. And then if there was something left over, I might have a few other clans that I'd look after. It wouldn't be ultimately good. And think about this. Think about why these tie together. If God were sovereign but not good, that'd be a bad thing, right? We have rulers all over this world who have a level of sovereignty but aren't good, and look at where they take things. And I'm not trying to make political statements. I'm talking general. A, so a person with a lot of power that is not totally good is a terrible situation. Why? Because he's not always going to do what's good. Bad circumstances then would have to be interpreted totally different if God were not good. Because then, maybe God doesn't like you today. Maybe God has decided to take back the promise that He made for you in the gospel. Huh? Maybe, maybe He's like me, and maybe He just woke up in a bad mood, and He don't care what you do. I'm not going to go for it. Maybe. But that's not the case with God. We see all throughout Scripture, God is portrayed as good, as perfect. Therefore, he alone can be trusted to work all things out for good. And, and you see it on your handout. God's goodness is what we must interpret our circumstances for us in everything we go through. God's goodness must interpret your circumstances. Here's what I mean by this. When, when bad things happen, when things happen that we don't understand... You've got to go back to the truth that God is good and interpret it through that. You may not understand it. You may not like it. But you cannot come to the conclusion that God is not good. That's why Paul started Romans 8.1 with this. There is no condemnation for those who love you. Listen, when bad circumstances happen, the conclusion you cannot come to is that you have been condemned by God, believer. He has not ceased being good. Our circumstances, though not good, do not mean that God is not good, even though He is in control. And of all of this, again, we have to trust that God is good. 
that everything he does flows out of a character that is perfectly good. And we've said this before. We have to interpret our circumstances through who we know God to be. We cannot interpret God through our circumstances. Does that make sense? You're going to come up with all kinds of bad theologies if you, and you, if you try to fit. Oh, well, this is happening, so God must be like this. That's a bad recipe. We've got to learn to interpret our circumstances through a lens that says God is good. Right? And you see it on your handout. When we say that God is good, what we are saying is that His character, who He is, is morally excellent. Meaning there's no sin in Him, there's no impure motives, there's nothing impure, nothing that's, there's nothing that is absent of perfect goodness. He's perfect. There's no flaw. His heart is true, His love is pure. He's always good. God always acts, even in God's sovereignty, God always, He only sovereignly acts in ways that are in line with this goodness. Please hear that. You say, is there anything God can't do? Well, the answer to that is He can't do anything that's contradictory to His nature. So He won't lie. And the challenge is, when we get in these tough situations, and we're not, this isn't new to just us, we tend to blame God and come to wrong conclusions. And we see this in James 1. Even sin, we'll start blaming God. Listen to what he says in James 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. When our circumstances are what we would classify as bad, that doesn't mean that God is bad. Rather, we have to take our circumstances back to who we know God to be. And we have to understand this. You and I have an adversary, Satan, who seeks to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And ultimately, people choose to disobey God and to, to obey Satan. Even John eight forty eight. If you've lied, listen, you obeyed Satan. He's the father of all lies. Again, go back to Joseph. Sold by his brothers, abandoned by his family members. Slavery, prison, false imprisonment. False accusation of rape, more imprisonment, forgotten, used. And yet God was sovereignly taking him to a place where he could provide for an entire nation. And why? So that God's promise would be upheld to provide for that nation. Not about Joseph. What about Joseph? Joseph was being used to uphold the promises of who? Of God. God got the glory. To be sure, Joseph got the joy of being used. I'm not saying it's a joy to walk with the Lord. He got the joy. God got the glory. Joseph trusted God. He saw his life as a vessel for God and God's glory and not his own. That's, and that's really the issue, isn't it, if we're honest? What, what is our life really about? That's what it boils down to. Is this about me? 
my glory or is this about God and his glory? And, and again, we're, we're not, you're, you're, God, God teaches me all the time through our kids. You know, our kids, don't, they don't always understand what's happening. They don't always understand why you're doing what you're doing. But what do you say to them? You're going to have to trust me on this one. And you know what? They can look back on a history, hopefully, and say, you know what? Dad's been for me. Mom's been for me, for me, for me, for me, for me, for me. Okay, well, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that God's for that my parents are for me in this. That's exactly what the scriptures do for us. We have thousands and thousands of years of a God never not being faithful to his word, always following through. A loving kindness has never failed. That's what Romans 15 says. Read the Old Testament and you'll have what? Hope. Hope. Paul says, go read the Old Testament, he says. What would be the blessing of that hope? Because you'll see a God that's never once failed. And he's not starting with you. And you see it on your handout. We, we have to trust. The word there is trust. You're going to have to trust the character of God no matter what happens. Easy when times are great, hard when times are not. And not only Joseph reminds of this, us this, I, saw, I showed you us, the cross reminds us of this. The cross reminds us of this. And listen, if your trust is in health or money or family or whatever, as those go, so will your peace. But if your trust is in the Lord, who will never leave you or forsake you, see Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, then you can be assured. And sometimes God in His grace will allow us to walk through something and will walk us through something to show us what's really in our hearts. And He'll prune us. You know, like you do plants in your house and, you know, those things look really ugly for a while. And then all of a sudden, green starts popping up. Before you know it, it's fuller than it ever was. And at some point, listen, we're going to have to trust God. And, and that's great news for the believer, but that's, that's news even for a non-believer. If you're here today and you're not a believer, please grasp this, that God not only will be faithful in blessing those who love Him, He will be faithful in cursing, and His wrath will faithfully fall on those who oppose Him. You go to Romans 2, 5, he already told us, you are non-believer, you are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. God's faithfulness, listen, it cuts both ways. Even this promise, this promise is not for everyone. This promise is only for those who, we'll see it next week, love him and are called according to his purpose. Non-believer, you will get nothing but wrath from God if you do not repent, ultimately. Romans 2.4, currently as he's being kind to you, he's being patient with you, Romans 2.4, to lead you to repentance. But there's going to come a day where that's going to be up and you're going to get what you've asked of him, wrath. And the great news of the gospel is you can repent today and have that wrath counted as Christ. He took that wrath for you. That's the good news. That's really the hope of believers. That Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that Christ took the wrath. 
And if we'll trust him, all of his promises can be ours. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many as are the promises of God in Christ Jesus, they are yes. Salvation for those who believe, condemnation for those who refuse. 